Good morning, TCC. Let's read from God's Word. We're reading from James 1, 13 to 18 this morning. And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. And he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin, when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. The word of God. Thank you, Nathan. As those uh, children in grades 5 and 6 head up to their class now, they stay in for the time of worship. If you're looking for uh, sermon notes this morning, you'll notice in the Sunday news that there was no sermon outline. Um, There are blank ones on the tables if you don't ever see one and you're one who likes to take notes. Um, Getting a sermon outline in would require that I'd actually have my message done by Thursday. And... um, and I don't think in 25 years that's ever happened. Uh, maybe once, but um, I didn't get that to our staff in time. So uh, you can take notes and follow along. They'll be up on the screen. Um, but uh, we have been engaged uh, since really the middle of September in a study of the letter that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to Jewish Christians who were scattered, as we learned in the very opening verses. They were scattered among the nations. And they were scattered among the nations because of the persecution that they experienced for their faith. James was writing this specific letter to encourage his readers in their trials and to urge them to continue to living faithful Christian lives in their new circumstances. And so the first 18 verses of uh, James chapter 1 are essentially about the real trials and temptations that they were facing. But the whole letter was written to help them, in a sense, keep it real. And even though we here in 2018 are removed uh, in in time, some 2,000 years and space, the reason we are studying this letter is to help us keep our faith real. And so we have been calling this series of messages simply Keeping It Real. And already you've heard from Pastors Ken and Adam and last week, Pastor Quinn, who had us thinking about the whole issue of temptation to sin that we face. In many ways, the verses that we're going to look at more closely this morning are related to the ones that he looked at last week. Temptation or evil does not come from God. That's what we learned. In fact, James says that each person is tempted by their own evil desires, and then Satan does his part in making sure that he makes sin look incredibly enticing and attractive. In fact, Because Satan is so good at deception and even misdirection, he intentionally tries to deceive and mislead people into blaming God. Did God really? And so James offers a warning this morning and then clearly affirms the goodness of God. First, the warning. James writes in verse 16, So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Many other translations use the word deceived. So 
don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into thinking that you should blame God for the trouble in your life. Some of the trouble you bring on yourself because of your own evil desires. Some of the trouble comes because of the evil desires of other people. Right? The horrific incident again that took place in Pittsburgh yesterday. That's evil. Make no mistake about it. Sometimes we have trouble because we have an enemy who is clearly who has a clearly stated purpose to steal, kill, and destroy. And as a follower of Jesus, you have a big target on your back. It goes with the territory. But don't be blaming God for the trials and temptations. This is so important to understand. Because remember the context of these verses. Remember why James is writing. His readers are suffering severe persecution because of their faith in Jesus. They were refugees who had to flee all that they knew in Israel, and now they find themselves scattered among the nations. They knew trials and suffering and hardship well. And so what would be the natural response to those kind of challenging circumstances? Of course, many would be disappointed with God. We believed in Jesus. Now look where we are. They might even be angry with God. If you were a good God, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen to your people. Doubting the goodness of God is what got Eve in trouble in the first place. Satan tempted Eve by causing her to doubt the goodness of God. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees? How can he then be good? Last Sunday night at the prayer summit, we prayed for three families who have fled persecution in Pakistan and now are in hiding in Thailand. The Refugee Bridge Ministry that you may be aware of, Bob and Beth Humphreys are a part of that and others as well. But they're, they're working to get these three families safely to Canada. But now they're being persecuted in Thailand as the police clamp down on, on those who have expired visas. They have been waiting there now for almost five years. And now they find themselves hiding in fear of being deported back to the very country that they had already run from. And so we have to pray, church, that that these applications would be expedited, that they would get to a place that's safe and free. But can you just imagine what they might be feeling? They're hiding in one-room dwellings, They're dependent on local churches and Christians to offer them protection and even the delivery of groceries. They can't go anywhere for fear of being caught. Perhaps they're questioning God's goodness. We may not find ourselves in such dire circumstances, but life experiences can cause us to question God's goodness, right? Sickness, chronic illness, suffering, the death of a loved one, conflict in your family, a friend who has betrayed you. Life is just hard sometimes. And in the midst of it, Satan saddles up close to you and whispers, if God were really good, you wouldn't be going through this. If God were really good. And so Satan tries to tell us untruths about God, and he insinuates all sorts of lies about him. And so James says to his readers, and he says to us today, 
Don't be misled. Don't be deceived. Because whenever we doubt the goodness of God, we are being deceived. So don't go there, and here's why. Because there are good gifts all around us. There are good gifts all around us, and they come from God. James writes in verse 17, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Do you hear that? Whatever gifts, all gifts, every good and perfect gift is from God, is what James says. Everything. It's, it's almost as if James calls his readers to take an inventory. Okay, are you doubting God's goodness? Well, you're being misled. So just look around. What do you see that is good? Make no mistake about it. Whatever you call good comes from God. It's helpful when we do that. I mean, what are some of the good things in your life? Good health, wisdom, family, friendships, talents, education, wealth, freedom, the smile of a baby, the singing of birds, the crash of the ocean waves, the awe-inspiring beauty of the mountains, a cool breeze in the heat of summer, the snap, crackle, and pop of a wood-burning fireplace in the winter. All of these are good gifts that come from God and thousands of other things too. Simply put, if it is good, it comes from God because he is the source of everything good. So evil never comes from God, but all good comes from God because he is the ultimate source of every good and perfect gift without exception. And his gifts are a reflection of his character. He is both good and perfect, and therefore so are his gifts. They are good gifts. I mean, it's so easy to have all of these good gifts around us. I don't know what it is about our our human condition, but yet we have all of the good things around us that we can give thanks for, and yet we can pick out that one thing in our lives that isn't very good at the moment. And we begin to view our whole world through the lens of that one thing. And that lens ultimately colors our perspective of God. Everything is then tainted. And we miss the goodness all around us. And so, even in the midst of terrible hardship, can we focus on the goodness of God and the good gifts that he gives? Now, we we might not see the goodness in something immediately. I'm reminded about the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. We won't take the time to read it, but if you have a moment, go there this afternoon. But no one knows for sure what this thorn in the flesh was. But Paul describes it as something that tormented him. And so in any event, it doesn't sound good, does it? If you have a tormenting thing, this thing, this thorn in your flesh. And I'm sure that is why, on three separate occasions, it says that Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away. That was his perspective. He's like, I can't stand this thing, whatever it is. Please, take it away. And then God answered his prayer. Not with the removal of the thorn. It stayed. But clearly, Paul remembers God's answer. Because God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's all Paul needed to hear. 
My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul, that thorn in the flesh, it will keep you weak. And because it's weak, because it makes you weak, you will then depend on me. There's a purpose behind it. And so you know how Paul responded? Was it, seriously, God, I serve you, I pray, and this is what I get? In fact, God, this very thorn is keeping me from serving you to the fullest of my ability. Was that his answer? Of course it wasn't. In fact, Paul came to see this thorn as a good thing, a tremendous blessing in his life. I know it's a little strange, but listen to his explanation. This is what he then goes to say right after he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. He goes, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure, he says, in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Because he's got it. Because then he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So friends, we have good gifts. We do. Stop and take that inventory of your own life. And then even the things that don't appear to be good at first are actually blessings. Can we see that in our own lives? Good gifts that come from the good giver who wants the very best from us. Because James has now already established that all good gifts come from God our Father, who in fact is the good giver. He is indeed, as we sang this morning, a good, good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. But James continues to emphasize God's goodness when he writes, who created all the lights in the heavens. So James is saying that God's goodness is revealed in his creation. So God is the creator, and all that he has created is good. Do you remember the creation account? God created something each day, and then each day he stepped back and looked at it, and the Bible says, and God saw that it was good. And here James now specifically focuses on all the lights in the heavens. The NIV is probably more accurate in the translation when it describes God as the father of the heavenly lights, or simply father of lights which simply means that he created the sun and the moon, which reflects the light of the sun and the planets and the stars and the galaxies and the entire universe. This is the God that we worship. And James here has moved into the realm of astronomy. And it's a world, honestly, that I know very little about. Except to say that when I look up into a sky on a clear night, out in the mountains especially, and it's just this absolutely incredible light show. Yes, indeed, God, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. I mean, it's no wonder that the hymn writer expressed it with these words, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder... Have you ever done that? Have you ever stood out on a clear, dark night and looked up at the sky and said... 
when I in awesome wonder, when I consider all the worlds that thy hand has made, I can see all those stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power, thy creative power throughout the universe displayed. So he responds, then sings my soul, right? My Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. In other words, how good you are. The heavens declare his goodness. And so the next time you find yourself looking up into the night sky, try not singing that hymn. Because that is the right response to a good God who has created all good things, including the heavenly lights. But look at what James does. It's brilliant. No pun intended. He goes on to describe God by saying this. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. In other words, when you think about the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, right? The planets, there's constant variation. The stars vary in their brilliance. The sun rises and sets. The moon looks different all the time. I mean, did you see the variety of the moon this entire week? It was just spectacular some nights. And, and, and the color and the size, it was, it was incredible. But every night, it was different. And when you think about the heavenly lights, they cast all kinds of shadows. The clouds sometimes shade their light. And the sun even gets eclipsed sometimes. So they're always changing. But James says God isn't like that. James says that he does not change like shifting shadows. So James first emphasized God's goodness. It's revealed in his creation. But now he's emphasizing God's faithfulness or his constancy. Because God does not change. The fact is, it is impossible for God to change. Warren Worsby writes, God cannot change for the worse because he is holy And he cannot change for the get better because he's already perfect. So God is unchanging. Have you ever had to depend on someone who changed like shifting shadows so you could never be sure of what they might do? They always change their mind, change their opinion. God isn't like that. He's constant. He's steady. He's unchanging. He is always the same, and therefore, he is always good. And his goodness is always always undiminished and unchanged. Kent Hughes writes, God does not change like shifting shadows. God's goodness is always at high noon. See, Satan will tempt us to believe otherwise. He will try to tell you that God is not good. But listen to James. God is indeed good. He always has been. He always will be. And he can't be anything other than good. And so even when life's circumstances are just flat out hard, it's a battle for us to believe at those times, in those situations, that God is good all the time. But what you and I believe about God will absolutely shape us and our response to suffering and trials. You see, the Bible makes the goodness of God so clear. His goodness is foundational. 
vital, in fact. Ken Hughes writes, it is impossible to walk with God if we question his goodness. And A.W. Tozer writes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. That's the goodness of God. It disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the greatest gift God could have ever given. James writes in verse 18, He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, he goes on to say, out of all of creation, okay, in comparison to the heavenly lights, we became his prized possession. The birth that James writes about here is spiritual birth. God giving spiritual life to people who were once spiritually dead. So what makes this the greatest gift? Well, first of all, it's pretty remarkable that God would, in fact, give life to spiritually dead people. People who were eternally separated from God. People who were enemies of God. And this is how the Apostle Paul described it as he wrote to the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says this, Once you were dead, so past tense, you once were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to, past tense, live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. We faced eternal separation from God. Death. And instead, God gave us life. He gave us spiritual life. Eternal life. The life of heaven. And in doing this, he absolutely demonstrated his goodness. And notice that James says, he chose to give birth to us. It was his choice. This is the work of God. We did absolutely nothing to, to, to generate our own human birth, and we can do absolutely nothing to generate our own spiritual birth. Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it was God who performed the miracle. It was a sheer act of his grace. There's no other way to explain it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Our spiritual birth was the result of God's initiative. He chose to give birth to us. And he gave us spiritual birth because of his own grace and will. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, John writes, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God, They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. 
Matthew Henry, writing about salvation, says this, The original of this good work is here declared. It is of God's own will, not by our skill or power, not from any good unforeseen in us, or good or done by us, but purely from the good will and grace of God. Not by our skill or power, not from any good foreseen in us, or any good done by us, but purely from the good will and grace of God. Kent Hughes writes, We are God's people because of a total act of grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness. Get that? We are God's people because a total act of grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness. I love that. His unprompted goodness. And that's why we, like Paul, can boldly declare, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Indeed, the greatest gift. And so how do we receive this gift? James goes on to write, by giving us his true word. Or better yet, through the word of truth. In other words, through the preaching of God's word. It's it's quite remarkable, actually, because when the gospel is preached, Our minds are open. They're enlightened. We see our sinful condition for what it really is. And then the Holy Spirit uses the word to bring us to spiritual life. This is what Peter writes about in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 and 25. It says, For you have been born again, there's that new birth, that rebirth again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever, but because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. That word is the good news that was preached to you. If you are in Christ... You will probably remember a time and maybe even the place when the Spirit of God used the Word of God to bring about the miracle of new birth. I remember Friday, August 15th, 1980, like it was yesterday. For the previous five consecutive nights, night after night, I heard Billy Graham preach essentially the same message. It was right here in Edmonton at Northlands Coliseum. And his message was pretty much the same every night. God loves you. God has a plan for you. But you're separated from God because of your sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for my sins. So you must believe that and repent. For five consecutive nights. And on the sixth night, there was something different. Whether it finally made sense. But I believe it was at that time that the Holy Spirit then took that word of God that I heard over and over and over, and probably for 13 years before that. Do the math now and figure out how old I am, I just realized. There was something different that night. And so when Mr. Graham extended an invitation to those who would respond to his message... I remember turning to my dad who I was sitting beside that night and I just said, I'm going. And I was up in the second tier and I remember going down those stairs. And it was that night that the Word of God and the Spirit of God came together and brought me from spiritual death to life. 
Friends, I had been going to church for years before that. But I was still dead. I was spiritually dead. And that night, something different happened. Friends, there's no greater gift. In fact, it is the good and perfect gift. So what do you do with this message? How do you respond? Let me give you a few things. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've not said yes to him, here's what you do. Repent and believe in the free gift of Jesus Christ. Just say yes to Jesus. Believe in your heart. And you, you've heard me say this before maybe. Maybe you've been here many Sundays and you've heard that thing, same thing, message over and over. We're separated from God because of our sins. We face eternal life separated from God. But God made a way through his son Jesus Christ. And if I believe in him, I will have eternal life. Maybe something different is stirring in your heart today. And at the end of the, the service, we just invite you to respond. Come forward and pray with somebody. But repent and believe in the free gift of Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you have done that, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of his, can I just say this? Surrender to God today, saying, I absolutely trust in your goodness. In spite of my circumstances, in spite of what everything else that's going around, all of the things that I can't control in my life, there's one thing that I will absolutely know with certainty, and that is, God, that you are good. That you can trust him to know that he is always working in the background. And you have a choice to make. You can either blame him because you've listened to the little lies of the, of the enemy saying, you know, if God really good, this wouldn't be happening to you. If God really good, you would have this. Or you can trust him. You say, I trust in your goodness. Thirdly, Walk in the certain knowledge that you are his prized possession. I, I didn't spend a lot of time explaining that. Some translations say first fruits. It's, it's just a sense that those who God has given new birth to, to, they are a special treasure to him. You are his son. You are his daughter. And so just live out your faith. Be active in it day by day. Read God's word. Pray. Study God's word. Meditate on it. And then go about your day living it out. Asking God for the strength to live it out. Because God used his word to bring about that new birth in the first place. And he will use his word to give you spiritual strength as you carry on. And you may find there are times where we all are tempted to believe that God isn't good and that he doesn't care. And it's then that we have to come back and be anchored in who we are. We are children of God, sons and daughters. And we're anchored in who he is. He's a good, good father and he's unchanging. I should wrap this up, but I want to share this because it's going to lead right into this song. Actually, worship team, why don't you already come up? We're going to sing a song, and I want to just tell you the story because I think it just perfectly encapsulates this. And I have to say thanks to Adam because he picked the song, and then I said, I have to close with that story. And some of you may know this story, and, but it, it's worth repeating, and those of you who don't, you need to hear this. But Horatio Spafford, he was, he was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago, 
He had a wonderful family, a wife, Anna, and five children. They weren't strangers to tears and tragedy, though. Their youngest son died with pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once more. But on November 21st, 1873, they were on a French ocean liner crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on, the, on board. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he needed to stay in Chicago to take care of some business, and he would join them later. But about four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the the ship that they were on collided with a powerful, iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. And suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly gathered her four children to the deck, and she knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, and prayed that God would spare them if that would be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor who was rowing a boat over the spot when the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Another of the ship's survivors, a pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. And when the ship was about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him that they were at the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river, attendeth my way. So when things are good, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Why? Because God is good. I can trust it no matter what.